You are listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Emswich from Temple Beth Shalom. Soul Searching is a journey where I engage with faith leaders and academics to explore deep questions of meaning. Questions that all of us ask at some point in our lives, such as, why are we here? What is right and wrong? Is there good and evil? Is truth relative or absolute? Is there life after death? And to help us in our journey this evening, we are very honored to welcome to our show, Dr. Sundari Cheryl Demby, author of The Choice of Happiness, Glimpses from an Extraordinary, Ordinary, Scientific, Mystical Life, also a teacher of meditation, an ordained priestess, singer, traveler, and planetary caretaker. Dr. Sundari, welcome. Thank you, Rabbi Neil. Thank you so much for having me. It's great having you here. I missed out a lot of your biography in, in that very brief introduction. Um, I, I know you're also a teacher of meditation, Enneagram, esoteric practices in varied local and international settings. You've dived into six major religions, you're ordained as a priestess. I think I mentioned that one. You spent your lifetime as a singer. You've traveled to 45 different countries. There's a lot of things in one lifetime. And what's fascinating to me is that it all starts in science. So if, if it's okay with you, let's start there with, with the science. Sounds great. Uh, I mean, you grew up, basically. You grew up during the race to the moon. Um, how did that affect your life? How did that affect your development? Well, it was an amazing time, a time where science was respected, valued, and uh, supported with finances in, in all sorts of different ways. So, and there was a great deal of new math in the schools. So in seventh grade, I had algebra, um, and we had to, it was a special system, University of Illinois Committee on School Mathematics. We had, um, we had to do formal deductive and inductive proofs in order to use any algebraic theorem. And then courses were tracked at that point. And I, I must say too, that women were welcome in the scientific world on that, at, at that particular moment in time in, in an unusual way in that all resources were being tapped in order to get us to the moon. So there were track classes in the school and I was with a very quirky group of quite smart people. And uh, we would take physics lyrics and uh, put them to Bach fugues. And some of the people in my classes made an operetta combining Moby Dick and the Scarlet Letter. And then I had this wonderful high school chemistry teacher who was a woman, attractive, and she would sing the solubility song for net ionic equations, which I used in my community college 37 year teaching career. Uh, and I have up now on YouTube as a music YouTube video. So it was um, a great supportive time for science. It sounds uh, extraordinary. And, and especially, you know, as you said, a, sign, a time when science was respected and valued. I mean, it's so important. Um, I, I, not, I don't want to go into the shift of what caused the change, but, but for you, as you went into science then, was it, what was it that inspired you? What was it that, I mean, it sounds a lot of fun, but fun only gets us so far. Um, what, what, was the, what, what was it that really inspired you? I could see myself in that world. 
I think having mentors is so important. And um, I love some of the programs in our area. There are um, tech trek groups for uh, disadvantaged girls in Oakland. And um, I spoke to a group of them recently. And I think the idea of having mentors is important to see that this is something we could become. This is something we can do. And also, it was a wonderful group of students I was with. Um, at a very large high school, about 4,500, and uh, went on from then to University of Michigan, getting my bachelor's of science, and to University of Chicago uh, for the graduate work. And what was it, there was an important thing, what was it that happened to you at the University of Chicago? And, and I guess the other question that goes with that is, how did the history of the times set the backdrop for what unfolded for you there? Well, things were pretty normal up through college. And then in between college and grad school, um, I, that was a very unusual summer. And I worked in chemical industry in Holland, actually, at that point in time. And this was the summer of 68. And so Martin Luther King had been um, assassinated uh, for uh, April 8th of that year. And then I was off in Europe when Robert Kennedy was assassinated on June 5th. And then the month before I started the University of Chicago uh, in the end of August, August 26th through 29th of 1968 was the Democratic Convention. And that Democratic Convention was one of the bloodiest in terms of tens of thousands of demonstrators demonstrating um, on really two issues. Uh, and the police were quite violent in their uh, interaction with those student protesters, much like we're seeing the country today. So one big issue of that day was really the equivalent of Black Lives Matter. Um, the, the Black Panthers had just founded with Bobby Searles and he was part of the group arrested there. Uh, so there were portions of the African-American community and the African-American area of Hyde Park was pretty much a ghetto at that point. It's where Barack Obama grew up and um, it was a tough area. And the other group of protesters were protesting the Vietnam War. And so, um, and my class was the very first class where there was no longer student draft deferment. So large numbers of students were objecting to both the war itself innately and the draft and the lack of student deferment. And so into that atmosphere, I started the University of Chicago. And how did that go for you? What, what was that like for you then? I mean, it's, ex it's an extraordinary time. What was it that happened to you there? Well, I was a very serious student. It, it, one interesting point is that um, when I started, um, a roommate I spoke with recently told me our class was packed with women. And what that meant is out of 46 graduate students, seven were women. Then after one year of studies, so after the classes, um, the prelim exams and the orals, there were only 23 of the 46 remaining. And out of that, six were women. And so I went through a normal course of being a very, very, very focused scientist doing my research um, 
for about four years at University of Chicago. So uh, what was it like being a woman in science at that time then? I mean, it doesn't sound very positive. It sounds like a huge dropout rate. So what was it like being a woman in science? Um, uh, you know something, I don't think it was, from my perspective up to that point, it didn't feel that different to me than what the men were experiencing. We were just 100% of the time focused 100% on our research. <laughs> and um, I was very serious scientist. And so I didn't, until the events that happened to me, and I, should I just tell you what happened to yes, me? Let's go, yes, go into that, definitely. So I went my four years, very serious, focused, and my advisor came up to me one day and said, you're done. You can write it up. And I was just ecstatic. And then he dropped dead 10 days later. Three days later, the department came to me and said, well, Miss Demby, sorry, but the next fellow won't have a woman in his research group. You're going to have to start your project from scratch again. New project, new advisor. Then three days, one week exactly to the day that he died, someone broke into my locked apartment in the middle of the night and basically sexually assaulted me. And um, the department sent me flowers for being assaulted. But for the next three months, I sat there. And I think that's a time when um, these things weren't spoken of. This was the year before gender equity um, and the gender equity laws were formed. And um, I think we had reached the moon in 69, this was 71. I think both people were uncomfortable having a woman in their research group. I think they were uncomfortable having someone who'd been assaulted, the such things were not spoken of. Um, and I th so no one spoke to me and I eventually took a week vacation to California and found a full-time college teaching job in a week and ended up in a lifetime teaching career. It, it, it's extraordinary and terrible. Um... To, to, to hear this story, and I mean, the idea that you had worked for four years and for them to turn around and say, no, it's done because you're a woman, because the, because the next fellow won't take you as a student. What, what does that do? How, how did that feel at the time? What, I, 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 I being male, I, I don't have access to that. What was it like for you? And, and I, I asked that particularly not to, to bring up painful memories, but to help those who are still undergoing such gender discrimination to know you're not alone here. Well, it's, it's amazing. I, um, I, I didn't think to question it at the time. Um, I felt it, it was a gift that I was there doing that work. And fortunately, I have an attitude of making the best out of wherever I go, whatever I discover. And it was really later on then, and in 2000, I was on sabbatical and found, um, discovered that someone, I looked, I was reading up, of course, I'm women in science I was in, and, and I was reading uh, Nobels in science and looking at Marie Curie and Rosalind Franklin, who was denied a Nobel for the Watson Crick work along with them. And all of a sudden I saw this research, Doug Osheroff at Stanford, and it looked like my research. And I was shocked and I went to the journals and it still looked like you know parallel research, not taken research. And so I called him on the phone and 
he said, oh, heard about your group and your work. He said, you should have gotten your degree. I'll support you in that. And I, um, and so that was the first time that I found a world affirmation. I thought of myself as someone who didn't make it all my life. Right. And uh, so at that point, I wrote the University of Chicago. I mean, even though I'd been department chair and division head where I was, there was this underlying, there's something wrong with me feeling. And which led me into the spirituality, truly, uh, to understand my life and gave me a richness I would never have had on the initial path. And I think there's that gift in each of our lives that if we but had eyes to take the overview, we can see an exquisite pattern in each of our lives, no matter how many difficulties uh, pursue us. Um, and uh, so I wrote Chicago then and no one answered. I lived my life. Right. <laughs> and then in 2018, I was in a hashtag Me Too group. Um, I was kind of in a tantric setting, people exploring that world. And I thought, I should have gotten that degree. Right. Um, I earned it. I deserved it. I should be given it. And times have changed. So I wrote the University of Chicago. And immediately, I mean, I must give tremendous credit to President Bob Zimmer. Um, immediately, the vice provost contacted me, the gender equity Title IX interviewed me for two hours of interviews. The, um, and then they set up a committee and they said, I, all those years, 48 years, I carried around 475 pages of research, which I never looked at since the day Kaiser died. <laughs> and then I was told, digitize it, send it in. And I did, uh, although with great difficulty, I had to figure out how to digitize graphs and charts. Uh, it got so flustered in the process, I ended up in the ER with aphasia at one point, just overwhelmed by being a graduate student again, when they asked me, whose handwriting is on page blip and wow. where are the breakthroughs in your research? And but then- this is extraordinary. I mean, we're going to have to take a pause in a moment. But it, so it took 48 years from the time when you should have been given a degree to them then turning around and saying, yeah, you deserve this, right? I did no extra work in that time and was, and should I, do we have time for me to just read this letter? That please, I was, please. So then on about four months after I submitted the research, I received this letter. Dear Miss Demby, thank you for your letter of April 7th, 2018, following your correspondence with the Department of Chemistry at the University of Chicago in 2000. We regret that the university did not respond to your request 18 years ago, and regret still more that your, diligent, your difficulties while you were a student in our department were handled with such negligence. An incredible statement, no buts, no passing blame. We thank you for your persistence in writing again, and especially for presenting us with an opportunity to partially rectify these mistakes of the past. As you know, after receiving your letter, a committee analyzed your research, looked at it, evaluated it. I'd like to congratulate and uh, the Department of Chemistry is pleased to report that the university has agreed that the degree of PhD should be awarded to you at the end of this summer quarter. 
I'd like to congratulate you and invite you to participate in the next convocation, June 15, 2019. We would be honored if you would allow the department to cover your travel expenses to Chicago. And they paid for myself, my children, to watch me graduate. And so I just graduated. That's extraordinary. That's wonderful. Let's, let's hold that with us. That, that's a, what, a, what a wonderful moment. Let's hold that with us as we take a pause. We're going to uh, return after this quick break. You're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil from Temple Beth Shalom. Uh, my guest this evening, Dr. Sandari Cheryl Demby, um, uh, author of The Choice of Happiness, Glimpses from an Extraordinary, Ordinary, Ordinary Scientific Mystical Life. We'll be back after this break. You're back listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom here in Santa Fe. My guest this evening, Dr. Sundari Gerald Demby, um, the author of The Choice of Happiness, Glimpses from an Extraordinary, Ordinary Scientific Mystical Life. Before the break, you told us this extraordinary story of this 48 years or 49, once you got the convocation, this extraordinary weight that you had um, in order to have your work recognized merely because of your gender, held back because of being a woman. There was something you said before we took our break that I, I can't gloss over. You spoke about the Nobel Prize for Chemistry and how somebody else, without plagiarizing or anything else like that, but somebody else ended up getting the Nobel Prize for Chemistry for work that was almost identical to yours. What, does, what did that feel like when you saw that and, and realized I'm assuming that should have been me. You know, had I been given my PhD, if I'd been given my doctorate, had I been allowed to continue, then I could have been a Nobel Prize chemist. What did that do to you internally? What is, what is that? What was your response to that? You know, I don't tend to dwell on the past as much as moving forward. And having gone through most of my life thinking that I didn't make it, it was an inconceivable thought. And even if I dared let myself think that, I might go to the place of saying, well, they wouldn't have given it to a woman. I, I, I mean, there's that template in me. Um, uh, it's funny, I've actually dared write the Nobel Committee just to tell them about my existence since this happened, but I haven't heard back from them. And it was, um, it was more like, I don't know, Cinderella's godmother coming along and saying, well, my dear, you have always been a princess, you know? And it's, it's taking a while for me to integrate um, the University of Chicago, my committee chair, at some point, there's one quote, um, it's, I don't know if I'm going to pop it up at this exact moment, but basically it says, um, had we given Miss Demby a few more months to write up, it would have been good not only for her, but for the University of Chicago. Right. Uh, and they're really acknowledging the quality of my research. And I really had, it was a graduate student, you have no idea if your research is not good, good, extraordinary. There's no uh, right. internal criteria to be judging what you're doing. So um, I move on and I, I have, you know, there is a, there is a four step conscious method I use to get, to help 
get my degree. And it's what I use in life to solve adversities with other people and other institutions and things. And so what I did, let me see here, oh well, was first of all, I didn't approach the university in anger. I approached them as an institution having the integrity to want to correct an error and believing in them. And by thinking the best of them, I stepped up into my best and was able to believe in my innate worth and value and intellect and uh, that my project was worthy as well. And secondly, I, I gave them three concrete possibilities, either grant me the degree, grant me an honorary degree, or use my book as a thesis. Because my book has not only, ah, it's a very unusual book, right and left-brained. It's nine years of my life moving from a guru path through three mentors to standing in my own guidance, esoteric aspects of the six different religions, pilgrimages around the globe, sleeping on top of Mount Sinai, getting a download of 11 new commandments up there in the middle of the night, um, Egypt, Bali, Mexico, um, and interlaced with all of that are maybe 25 original applications of chemical principles to uh, how you can find happiness, how you can step into gratitude, how you can step into forgiveness, allowing. Um, and uh, so I conscious, oh, so that's- But yeah, you've got two more. And then I really do want to talk about the book. And the third, is there's always a win-win solution that you can find with someone. And fourth, I gave up outcome. And uh, the outcome that happened was more than I would ever guess. And I see this method as being useful for Black Lives Matter uh, between sides, for our political process, for anyone who feels unjustly treated by either a person or institution. And I think my book helps find those windows in even the most chaotic of times in one's life to align with these principles. So look, I mean, we've only got five minutes left. Um, so, I mean, you, you've, you've moved from, uh, from a scientific background and, and not just studied science, but, but a really high level, potentially Nobel Prize winning scientific level to to facing some very serious adversity to coming through it um and you as you mentioned your book talks about mysticism it talks about happiness these are two very unscientific things um so i guess my question for you is is about spirituality is, is what does spirituality mean to you having gone through this extraordinary journey from which i think all of us can learn well, for me, spirituality is the interlacing of the divine into the very fabric of every moment of my life. You know, I came to California, I found all these groups, I did all these practices, and I've meditated every day since 74, except for one year. And what I've come to is the totality of my meditation at this point is downloading spirit every morning solely your thoughts, solely your vision, solely your listening, hearing, solely your heart, solely your intestines, solely your words. And really that's the totality of it is my aligning with my guidance 
and using it as my operating system. And anyone can align with guidance. I, I see four things necessary. I see the need to ask for the guidance, the willingness to actually hear the guidance, right. the trust that what you receive, even if it's in your own voice, is the guidance and the practice of getting used to that. And um, my, my kind of philosophy at the end that sums it up, I got during a Beatles revival concert where <laughs> all you need is love. And what I heard was, love me your solution. Live me your agenda. Make my day. You know, I, I think it's so wonderful. It's so lovely. It's so refreshing to hear. You know, um, the phrase I think you used, spirituality is the interlacing of the divine into every moment of my life. And that's what I try to do as a rabbi, although I come from a very different um, perspective. Um, but, um, but, but spirituality is not just a weekend thing in synagogue. It's not just when we, when we do specific things. You know, to be spiritual, to, li to live spirituality is, is, is to live totally. Either God, I believe it was Abraham Joshua Heschel, who said either God is supremely relevant or God is not relevant at all. In other words, either you're spiritual all the time, either you access spirituality at all times, or it's not really spirituality. Um, and so I, for me, it's, it's extremely refreshing to hear you say that. Um, and, but especially having come from that journey, I guess maybe my final question, um, how do you think that journey has resulted in that perspective of spirituality? What, what do you think led you to, to understanding spirituality that way? Well, the whole of everything has led me where I am. And, you know, that, that first uh, group that I was in was called Seekers After Truth. Sat is what it was called. And um, for me, what I've stepped into is an ever deepening, deepening uh, understanding of oneness as, as for me, what is everything. Um, uh, I, I've kind of settled into non-dualism as a faith pillar informed by rituals of all these different traditions and, and science. And um, I started out in Judaism too. And for me, the Shema has always been the pillar um, here, here, here in Israel, right? The eternal is our God, the eternal one. And I think of this oneness as the identity of each of us, fractally and holographically, as the divine and as the one mind we are co-creating this dream of our lives and this vision of creation. And um, you, you know, even in science now, you see oneness, like uh, unified field theory, uh, the idea of entanglement of electrons, Bell's theorem, that when you look at something, you observe something, you change it, string theory, dimensions folding and folding into oneness. And from the bottom of the mountain, everything looks different. But from the top, everything comes to the same place. And... Um, uh, it's, it's funny, the thing that even my success in getting the doctorate was joining with oneness. 
uh, I, I think of like a horizontal and vertical enlightenment. I and my father are one, you and right. I are one. Right. I think, look, I, I think this is extraordinary. I'd love for us to talk more, but unfortunately we've run out of time. But I, I just think it's so wonderful to hear almost like a science-based spirituality or a spirituality where, where science is integral and not combative and so on. So um, I really want to thank you. Um, thank you for coming on to our show this evening. Thank, thank you so much, Rabbi Neil. Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful talking to you. And I really appreciate it. Thank you. So thank you to Dr. Sundari Cheryl Demby, author of The Choice of Happiness, Glimpses from an Extraordinary, Ordinary Scientific Mystical Life. You've been listening to Soul Searching with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom and from the Interfaith Leadership Alliance of Santa Fe. Until we return again in two weeks' time, keep searching.